Welcome to Oddments, the audio program from College of Curiosity. Here's your host, Jeff Wagg. Thank you for listening to this, our first episode of Oddments. We'll be spending the next 15 or so minutes together talking about all kinds of interesting and unusual things. But first, a bit about the College of Curiosity. We're a group of like-minded people, a college, if you will, devoted to bringing a sense of awe and wonder into the world. Through our online magazine, conferences, day trips, and longer field trips, we offer a new way to look at the commonplace and a view into some things that aren't common at all. But now let's hear about some news from down under. Jarris, hello! Hey Jeff, big news from the world of forensic osteology. We might have found the final resting place of Ned Kelly. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ned Kelly, but he's been one of my favorite criminals ever since I saw the excellent biopic by the renowned Australian actor Yahoo Serious. Essentially, Ned Kelly was a downtrodden farmer who ran afoul of the law when they came to arrest his brother. The constable reported that he had been roughed up. Ned and his brother took to the bush to escape jail, so they arrested his mother instead, because that is what justice does. After that, Ned gathered a gang about himself, and they targeted the man, specifically the police and the banks. They even took over a police station and arrested the constables so that they could rob a bank in the same town. If you need an American version, you have to think about someone like Jesse James or Pretty Boy Floyd. The best part comes at the end of his career. The police are closing in, and Ned and the boys know that sooner or later, they are going to be in a tight spot with a lot of gunfire. So they do what anyone would do. They make some armor. Yes, iron armor with big freaking helmets. Sure enough, there's a big shootout not long after. The armor does the trick and the gunfire goes on and on until the police realize that Ned's legs are exposed. They shoot him in the calves and the ankles and they bring him down. This event has led most historians to conclude that Ned Kelly never read the Iliad. Ned was taken away to prison, tried for being a badass, and hanged until dead. He was buried in the graveyard of the Melbourne jail. Forty years later, it was decided that the jail should be torn down and a school put up in its place. Part of this project consisted of moving the bodies from the graveyard and relocating them at another prison graveyard. As the story goes, a crowd of boys was standing around eating their lunches and watching bodies being exhumed on April 12, 1929. As soon as Ned Kelly's grave was open, the boys rushed forward and grabbed parts of the body as souvenirs. Yet another instance where it is difficult to tell a normal 12-year-old boy from your average serial killer. The authorities reclaimed most of the bones, but they decided to give the skull to some government official. Who knows why? Maybe it's an Australian custom. The skull kicked around for a while and eventually ended up in the Melbourne Jail Museum. Then it was stolen. In 1978, it just turned up, not turning up. Gone. And it stayed gone until some guy brought it back in 2009. Can't say how he got it, but here it is. Sorry for the trouble. Meanwhile, back at the prison, archaeologists had decided that they wanted to check out those old bodies in the graveyard. So they began disinterring them. Again. The remains were mostly jumbled around, and they had to reassemble the skeletons, and finally found among them the headless corpse of a man. The skull fit perfectly. Unfortunately, it fit the wrong headless man. In the jigsaw puzzle, they also found Ned Kelly's headless skeleton, the skeleton that showed the bullet wounds to the legs and matched the mitochondrial DNA of a Kelly descendant, which the skull did not. So, Ned Kelly remains headless. The real question is, does this matter? This is not a case where discovering the skull will give us clearer insights into the man. We've got the man's story pretty clearly recorded from interviews with him and his family. The skull of Ned Kelly isn't going to give us insights into human evolution like the skulls of Homo habilis or Australopithecus, 
There isn't anything more that we can learn from another piece of Ned Kelly's skeleton, so why are we so fascinated? Why do we want to put the body parts of famous people on display? More than that, why do we collect the weapons of outlaws or the props from movies? Does owning Dorothy's dress really make The Wizard of Oz better? Goodness, how did you ever get like this? Why do we collect autographs or save the menu from a first date? That's the bigger question. Why do we attach meaning to the physical at all? There you go, Jeff. More questions than answers, because that is what curiosity is about. Thank you, Jarris. And a, a quick view of the news here shows that John Dillinger's 1934 Model A recently sold for $165,000 at auction, but that was far surpassed by Bonnie and Clyde's gun that sold for $504,000 at a New Hampshire auction. It seems that collecting the effects of bank robbers is not just an Australian phenomenon. While putting together this piece, I obviously used a lot of sound effects. These are added simply by overlaying one track on another, and then they're all flattened together to create one seamless sound stream. And one of the most famous sound effects ever is one you've probably heard. The Wilhelm scream. You've all heard this before, even if you're not aware of it. And I fear that making you aware of it will distract you from all future movies, TV shows, and video games. But alas, such is the price of being curious. There was some controversy over who the actor was, but it seems pretty settled now that Sheb Woolley, best known for his smash hit song, The Purple People Eater, was the original actor who made the scream. By the way, the ambiguous color of the purple people eater is somewhat cleared up in the song's lyrics. The creature enjoys eating purple people, but its own color is indeterminate. Anyway, sound man Ben Burt discovered a film reel called Man Being Eaten by an Alligator. And how could one not put that on and give it a listen? Burt started including the sound in films for George Lucas, such as Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and even Howard the Duck. Though it was first recorded for the movie Distant Drums, Burt named the sound the Wilhelm Scream after the unfortunate arrow-slain Private Wilhelm in the 3D film The Charge at Feather River. This film is also known for its many visual effects of arrows and lances flying from the screen at the audience. Here are three of the five or six takes of the scream that are most often heard. And one more time. And now a melange of some of the pictures that feature the Wilhelm scream, starting with the namesake, the charge at Feather River. And there goes Private Wilhelm. Them, the sci-fi giant ant movie. By the way, the sounds of the ants were actually made by tree frogs. Star Wars, A New Hope. Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and Batman Returns. So the next time you're watching an action flick, listen for the Wilhelm scream. 
chances are you won't be able to miss it, and your movie-going experience has been slightly altered by listening to this episode. But that's okay. You now know a not-so-secret handshake that links you with the filmmakers of the world. March 31st, 2003. Mayor Richard M. Daley was no stranger to controversy over how he ran things in Chicago. Both loved and despised by the residents, the Daleys were a powerful political family in Chicago, and they had a reputation for using extreme measures. The fate of Miggs Field was no exception. Miggs Field opened in 1948, nearly three decades after the first plane had taken off from Chicago in 1910. The airport was built on landfill very close to the South Loop section of the city. As the years passed, Chicago's O'Hare and Midway airports grew and handled most of the area's air travel. But Miggs Field was still popular with private pilots and tourists. The famed Tuskegee Airmen often gave free rides from Miggs to the city's children. However, a close-in airport didn't fit with Daly's plans for the area. He wished for it to be a park. After years of political wrangling, which we'll skip past here, a compromise was reached in 2001 to keep the airport open for another 25 years. However, the U.S. Senate had not voted on the matter, and Mayor Daley decided to take things into his own hands. During the night of March 31, 2003, Mayor Daley ordered bulldozers to plow X's into the airport's runways. These would be visible to landing aircraft, and thus there was little risk of an incident. The only problem with this was, many planes were hangared at MiGs, and now had no way to get off the island. The FAA fined the city, which appealed, and after years of delays and lawyering, the city paid a fine of $33,000 and agreed to repay a million dollars in funds earmarked for airport improvements, the same funds that were used to demolish Miggs Field. Soon after the airport was demolished, a flight from Oshkosh to Maine needed to make an emergency landing at Miggs. Faced with no usable runway, the pilot landed on the grass instead. After some electrical repairs, the small plane was able to take off again. Mayor Daly saw this as an act of defiance, but the FAA agreed with the pilot's decision. If you're a fan of flight simulators, you may be familiar with Miggs Field. It's the default airport in all versions of Microsoft Flight Simulator up until 2004, where it was an alternate airport. Our puzzle this time is in the where category. The theme? Places named after the day they were discovered. Everyone knows about Easter Island, famed for its moai, giant sculptures of forgotten ancestors. And yes, it was named because Dutch explorer Jakob Roggeveen discovered it on Easter Sunday in 1722. Like many discoveries, it was an accident. He was actually looking for Davis Island, which was rumored to contain pirate treasure. The sound of the waves that you're hearing was recorded on Easter Island. Some of you may have heard of Christmas Island, so named by English Captain William Miners as he sailed past it on Christmas Day in 1643. That's right, he didn't even bother to set foot on the island he named. Christmas Island is home to the Red Crab, which every year migrates in amazing numbers. They cross roads by the thousands, and it's impossible not to crush them as you drive along. Special crab crossing tunnels have been created to reduce the slaughter. Our third entry is a bit more mysterious. Portuguese explorer Diogo Dias discovered it on the feast day of St. Lawrence, but the name didn't stick. Your challenge? Find its current name. Legend has it that St. Lawrence was grilled to death, and the Catholics, never lacking for a sense of humor, have named him the patron saint of cooking. But the island that no longer bears his name is dark and mysterious, and if you're diligent, you've been given just enough information to determine where it is today.
How do we know the Bermuda Triangle isn't real? Because Lloyds of London tells us so. Lloyds of London has been an insurer in England since 1688. Greatly respected worldwide, Lloyds employs a large number of actuaries. These are people who spend their days predicting the likelihood of any given event, such as a shipwreck. If there is a higher incidence of shipwreck on a commercial vessel's journey, their insurance goes up. This is the case with ships who ply the waters near Somalia due to the danger of piracy. When the phenomenon of the Bermuda Triangle was introduced to the world by author Charles Berlitz, reporters went to Lloyds of London and asked them to examine their registry to see if an unusual number of disappearances occurred in the area. Their answer? No. And they don't charge more for vessels traveling in those waters. In the same vein, the U.S. Coast Guard was also asked, and showed that not only was there no unexpected loss in the area, they had direct proof that many of the books popularizing the subject were incorrect, as they had found the ships and recovered bodies where the books claimed they hadn't. While the area is full of reefs and bad storms, it's also filled with countless ships and airplanes. Every once in a while, one will go missing, but at no greater rate than any other similar place on Earth. Thank you for listening to Outlets, a production from the College of Curiosity. Contact us with any corrections or questions at collegeofcuriosity.com. And remember, like humans, koalas have fingerprints. However, koalas also have two thumbs on each hand, so it's unlikely that they'll be convicted of any crimes. This show was written and performed by Jeff Wag and Jarvis Dumont. Music by Fisher Wag and Jeff Wag. Special thanks to Jennifer Newport and the Madisons for their seemingly endless support.